Chapter Twenty Two of Miss Billy's Decision. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kim Zuckert. Miss Billy's Decision by Eleanor H. Porter. Chapter Twenty Two. Plans and Plottings. To Billy. Alice Gregory's first visit to Hillside was in every way a delight and a satisfaction. To Alice it was even more than that. For the first time in years she found herself welcomed into a home of wealth, culture, and refinement as an equal, and the frank cordiality and naturalness of her hostess's evident expectation of meeting a congenial companion was like balm to a sensitive soul rendered morbid by long years of superciliousness and snubbing. No wonder that under the cheerful friendliness of it all Alice Gregory's cold reserve vanished, and that in its place came something very like her old ease and charm of manner. By the time Aunt Hannah, according to previous agreement, came into the room, the two girls were laughing and chatting over the operetta as if they had known each other for years. Much to Billy's delight, Alice Gregory, as a musician, proved to be eminently satisfactory. She was quick at sight-reading, and accurate. She played easily and with good expression. Particularly was she a good accompanist, possessing to a marked degree that happy faculty of accompanying a singer, which means that she neither led the way nor lagged behind, being always exactly in sympathetic step, than which nothing is more soul-satisfying to the singer. It was after the music for the operetta had been well practiced and discussed that Alice Gregory chanced to see one of Billy's own songs lying near her. With a pleased smile she picked it up. "'Oh, you know this, too!' she cried. "'I played it for a lady only the other day. "'It's so pretty. "'I think all of hers are, that I have seen. "'Billy Nielsen is a girl, you know, they say, in spite of—' "'She stopped abruptly. "'Her eyes grew wide and questioning. "'Miss Nielsen? "'It can't be— "'You don't mean—is your name? "'It is—you!' "'She finished joyously as the tell-tale color dyed Billy's face. "'The next moment her own cheeks burned scarlet.' "'And to think of my letting you stand in line for a twenty-five-cent admission!' she scorned. "'Nonsense!' laughed Billy. "'It didn't hurt me any more than it did you. "'Come!' In looking about for a quick something to take her guest's attention, Billy's eyes fell on the manuscript copy of her new song, bearing Arkwright's name. Yielding to a daring impulse, she drew it hastily forward. "'Here's a new one. A brand new one not even printed yet. "'Don't you think the words are pretty?' she asked." As she had hoped, Alice Gregory's eyes, after they had glanced halfway through the first page, sought the name at the left side below the title. Words by M. J. There was a visible start and a pause before the Arkwright was uttered in a slightly different tone. Billy noted both the start and the pause, and gloried in them. "'Yes, the words are by M. J. Arkwright,' she said with smooth unconcern, but with a covert glance at the other's face. "'Ever hear of him?' Alex Gregory gave a short little laugh. "'Probably not, this one. I used to know an M. J. Arkwright long ago, but he wasn't a poet, so far as I know,' she finished, with a little catch in her breath that made Billy long to take her into a warm embrace. Alice Gregory turned then to the music. She had much to say of this, very much, but she had nothing more whatever to say of Mr. M. J. Arkwright, in spite of the tempting conversation bait that Billy dropped so freely.' After that Rosa brought in tea and toast and the little frosted cakes that were always such a favorite with Billy's guests. Then Alice Gregory said good-bye, her eyes full of tears that Billy pretended not to see. "'There,' breathed Billy, 
as soon as she had Aunt Hannah to herself again. "'What did I tell you? Did you see Miss Gregory start and blush and hear her sigh just over the name of M. J. Arkwright? Just as if—' "'Now I want them to meet. Only it must be casual, Aunt Hannah, casual. And I'd rather wait till Mary Jane hears from his mother, if possible. So if there is anything good to tell the poor girl, he can tell it.' "'Yes, of course, dear child, I hope he can,' murmured Aunt Hannah. Aunt Hannah had ceased now trying to make Billy refrain from the reprehensible Mary Jane. In fact, if the truth were known, Aunt Hannah herself in her thoughts and sometimes in her words called him Mary Jane. "'But indeed, my dear, I didn't see anything stiff or, or repelling about Miss Gregory, as you said there was.' "'Well, there wasn't, to-day.' smiled Billy. Honestly, Aunt Hannah, I should never have known her for the same girl who showed me the door that first morning, she finished merrily as she turned to go upstairs. It was the next day that Cyril and Marie came home from their honeymoon. They went directly to their pretty little apartment on Beacon Street, Brookline, within easy walking distance of Billy's own cozy home. Cyril intended to build in a year or two. Meanwhile, they had a very pretty, convenient home, which was, according to Bertram, electrified to within an inch of its life, and equipped with everything that was fireless, smokeless, dustless, and laborless. In it, Marie had a spotlessly white kitchen, where she might make puddings to her heart's content. Marie had, again according to Bertram, a visiting acquaintance with a maid. In other words, a stout woman was engaged to come two days in the week to wash, iron, and scrub— also to come in each night to wash the dinner dishes, thus leaving Marie's evenings free for the shaded lamp, Billy said. Marie had not arrived at this, to her, delightful arrangement of a visiting acquaintance without some opposition from her friends. Even Billy had stood somewhat aghast. "'But, my dear, won't it be hard for you to do so much?' she argued one day. "'You know you aren't very strong.' "'I know, but it won't be hard as I've planned it.' replied Marie, especially when I've been longing for years to do this very thing. Why, Billy, if I had to stand by and watch a maid do all these things I want to do myself, I should feel just like, like a hungry man who sees another man eating up his dinner. Oh, of course, she added plaintively, after Billy's laughter had subsided. I shan't do it always. I don't expect to. Of course, when we have a home, I'm not sure then, though, that I shan't dress up the maid and order her to receive the calls and go to the pink teas while I make her puddings, she finished saucily, as Billy began to laugh again. The bride and groom, as was proper, were, soon after their arrival, invited to dine at both Williams and Billy's. Then, until Marie's at-homes should begin, the devoted couple settled down to quiet days by themselves, with only occasional visits from the family to interrupt. Interrupt was Bertram's word, not Marie's though it is safe to say it was not far different from the one Cyril used in his thoughts. Bertram himself these days was more than busy. Besides working on Miss Winthrop's portrait and on two or three other commissions, he was putting the finishing touches to four pictures which he was to show in the exhibition soon to be held by a prominent art club of which he was the acknowledged star member. Naturally, therefore, his time was well occupied. Naturally, too, Billy, knowing this, lashed herself more sternly than ever into a daily reminder of Kate's assertion that he belonged first to his art. In pursuance of this idea, Billy was careful to see that no engagement with herself should in any way interfere with the artist's work, and that no word of hers should attempt to keep him at her side when art called. Billy always spelled that word now in her mind with tall black letters, the way it had sounded when it fell from Kate's lips. That these tactics on her part were beginning to fill her lover with vague alarm and a very definite unrest she did not want to suspect. 
Eagerly, therefore, even with conscientious delight, she welcomed the new song-words that Arkwright brought. They would give her something else to take up her time and attention. She welcomed them also for another reason. They would bring Arkwright more often to the house, and this would, of course, lead to that casual meeting between him and Alice Gregory when the rehearsals for the operetta should commence, which would be very soon now, and Billy did so long to bring about that meeting. To Billy all this was but occupying her mind, and playing Cupid's assistant to a worthy young couple, torn cruelly apart by an unfeeling fate. To Bertram, to Bertram it was terror and woe and all manner of torture, for in it Bertram saw only a growing fondness on the part of Billy for Arkwright, Arkwright's music, Arkwright's words, and Arkwright's friends. The first rehearsal for the operetta came on Wednesday evening. There would be another on Thursday afternoon. Billy had told Alice Gregory to arrange her pupils so that she could stay Wednesday night at Hillside, if the crippled mother could get along alone, and she could, Alice had said. Thursday forenoon, therefore, Alice Gregory would, in all probability, be at Hillside, especially as there would doubtless be an appointment or two for a private rehearsal with some nervous soloist whose part was not progressing well. Such being the case, Billy had a plan she meant to carry out. She was highly pleased, therefore, when Thursday morning came, and everything apparently was working exactly to her mind. Alice was there. She had an appointment at quarter of eleven with the leading tenor, and another later with the alto. After breakfast, therefore, Billy said decisively, "'Now, if you please, Miss Gregory, I'm going to put you upstairs on the couch in the sewing-room for a nap.' "'But I've just got up,' remonstrated Miss Gregory. "'I know you have,' smiled Billy. "'But you were very late to bed last night, and you've got a hard day before you. I insist upon your resting. You will be absolutely undisturbed there, and you must shut the door and not come downstairs till I send for you. Mr. Johnson isn't due till a quarter of eleven, is he?' "'No.' "'Then come with me,' directed Billy, leading the way upstairs. "'There, now, don't come down till I call you,' she went on, when they had reached the little room at the end of the hall. "'I'm going to leave Aunt Hannah's door open, so you'll have a good air. She isn't in there. She's writing letters in my room. Now here's a book, and you may read, but I should prefer you to sleep,' she nodded brightly as she went out and shut the door quietly. Then, like the guilty conspirator she was, she went downstairs to wait for Arkwright. It was a fine plan. Arkwright was due at ten o'clock, Billy had specially asked him to come at that hour. He would not know, of course, that Alice Gregory was in the house, but soon after his arrival, Billy meant to excuse herself for a moment, slip upstairs, and send Alice Gregory down for a book, a pair of scissors, a shawl for Aunt Hannah. Anything would do for a pretext, anything so that the girl might walk into the living room and find Arkwright waiting for her alone. And then, what happened next was, in Billy's mind, very vague, but very attractive as a nucleus for one's thoughts, nevertheless. All this was, indeed, a fine plan, but, if only fine plans would not so often have a but. In Billy's case the but had to do with things so apparently unrelated as were Aunt Hannah's clock and a negro's coal-wagon. The clock struck eleven at half-past ten, and the wagon dumped itself to destruction directly in front of a trolley-car in which sat Mr. M. J. Arkwright, hurrying to keep his appointment with Miss Billy Nielsen. It was almost half-past ten when Arkwright finally rang the bell at Hillside. Billy greeted him so eagerly and at the same time with such evident disappointment at his late arrival that Arkwright's heart sang with joy. "'But there's a rehearsal at a quarter of eleven, exclaimed Billy, in answer to his hurried explanation of the delay, "'and this gives so little time for—for—so little time, you know?' 
she finished in confusion, casting frantically about in her mind for an excuse to hurry upstairs and send Alice Gregory down before it should be quite too late. No wonder that Arkwright, noting the sparkle in her eye, the agitation in her manner, and the embarrassed red in her cheek, took new courage. For so long had this girl held him at the end of a major third or a diminished seventh, for so long had she blithely accepted his every word and act as devotion to music not herself for so long had she done all this that he had come to fear that never would she do anything else no wonder then that now in the soft radiance of the strange new light on her face his own face glowed ardently and that he leaned forward with an impetuous rush of eager words but there is time miss billy if you'd give me leave to say "'I'm afraid I kept you waiting,' interrupted the hurried voice of Alice Gregory from the hall doorway. "'I was asleep, I think, when a clock somewhere striking eleven. "'Why, Mr. Arkwright!' Not until Alice Gregory had nearly crossed the room did she see that the man standing by her hosts was not the tenor she had expected to find, but an old acquaintance. Then it was that the tremulous, "'Mr. Arkwright!' fell from her lips." Billy and Arkwright had turned at her first words. At her last, Arkwright, with a half-despairing, half-reproachful glance at Billy, stepped forward. "'Miss Gregory! You are Miss Alice Gregory, I'm sure,' he said pleasantly. At the first opportunity, Billy murmured a hasty excuse and left the room. To Aunt Hannah she flew with a woebegone face. "'Oh, Aunt Hannah, Aunt Hannah!' she wailed, half-laughing, half-crying. "'That wretched little fib-teller of a clock of yours spoiled it all!' "'Spoiled it? Spoiled what, child?' "'My first meeting between Mary Jane and Miss Gregory. I had it all arranged that they were to have it alone. But that miserable little fibber upstairs struck eleven at half-past ten, and Miss Gregory heard it and thought she was fifteen minutes late, so she her down she hurried, half-awake, and spoiled all my plans. Now she's sitting in there with him, in chairs the length of the room apart, discussing the snowstorm last night or the moonrise this morning or some other such silly thing, and I had it so beautifully planned.' "'Well, well, dear, I'm sorry, I'm sure,' smiled Aunt Hannah. "'But I can't think any real harm is done. "'Did Mary Jane have anything to tell her about her father, I mean?' "'Only the faintest flicker of Billy's eyelid testified "'that the everyday accustomedness of that Mary Jane on Aunt Hannah's lips "'had not escaped her. "'No, nothing definite. "'Yet there was a little. "'Friends are still trying to clear his name, "'and I believe are meeting with increasing success. "'I don't know, of course, whether he'll say anything about it today, now.' "'To think I had to be right round underfoot like that when they met,' went on Billy, indignantly. "'I shouldn't have been in a minute more, though. "'I was just trying to think up an excuse to come up and send down Miss Gregory "'when Mary Jane began to tell me something, I haven't the faintest idea what, "'and then she appeared, and it was all over. "'And there's the doorbell and the tenor, I suppose, so of course it's all over now,' "'she sighed, rising to go downstairs.' As it chanced, however, it was not the tenor, but a message from him, a message that brought dire consternation to the chairman of the Committee of Arrangements. The tenor had thrown up his part. He could not take it. It was too difficult. He felt that this should be told at once, rather than to worry along for another week or two and then give up. So he had told it. "'But what shall we do, Miss Gregory?' appealed Billy. "'It is a hard part, you know. "'But if Mr. Toby can't take it, I don't know who can. "'We don't want to hire a singer for it, if we can help it. "'The profits are to go to the home for crippled children, you know,' "'she explained, turning to Arkwright. "'And we decided to hire only the accompanist.' "'An odd expression flitted across Miss Gregory's face. "'Mr. Arkwright used to sing,' 
tenor,' she observed quietly. "'As if he didn't know. A perfectly glorious tenor,' retorted Billy. "'But as if he would take this.' For only a brief moment did Arkwright hesitate. Then, blandly, he suggested, "'Suppose you try him and see.' Billy sat suddenly erect. "'Would you really? Could you? Take the time and all?' she cried. "'Yes, I think I would.' "'Under the circumstances,' he smiled. "'I think I could, too, though I might not be able to attend all the rehearsals. "'Still, if I find I have to ask permission, "'I'll endeavour to convince the powers that be "'that singing in this operetta will be just the stepping-stone "'I need to success in grand opera.' "'Oh, if only you would take it,' breathed Billy. "'We'd be so glad.' "'Well,' said Arkwright, his eyes on Billy's frankly delighted face, "'as I said before, under the circumstances.' I think I would. Thank you. Then it's all beautifully settled, rejoiced Billy with a happy sigh, and unconsciously she gave Alice Gregory's hand near her a little pat. In Billy's mind, the circumstances of Arkwright's acceptance of the part were Alice Gregory and her position as accompanist, of course. Billy would have been surprised indeed and dismayed had she known that in Arkwright's mind the circumstances were herself, and the fact that she too had a part in the operetta, necessitating her presence at rehearsals, and hinting at a delightful comradeship impossible, perhaps, otherwise. End of chapter 22. Recording by Kim Zuckert, currently Santa Fe, New Mexico. KYMMZ.livejournal.com.